early growth for these companies. Yeah. And just very briefly, because we're we're running out of time. Do you think it can help boost sure. the overall market, which have really been in the doldrums recently, haven't they? Certainly their performance, if you compare it to the US and Europe, has been very subdued. Mm. Yeah, I think it's more on this uh, concern about uh, stagnation economy. So uh, the uh, the PEs of the companies have already uh, grown a significant so far this year. And uh, the, the, they need new capital into the stocks, into the equity market. So, but the, the sentiment uh, is really about how much growth, uh, uh, you know, and also translate to the company's uh, earnings growth in the next year. So, so I think it's uh, the 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 inflation PPI is still some big concern to the market valuation. Of this equity market, but uh, once uh, there's a new addition of uh, institutional money coming in, it will see a significant improvement. Okay, Yan, and thank you very much. That's Yan Wu, Chairman of Zhenglong Bao up in Beijing. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio Three. And in the markets, the ASX 200 in Australia up 0.4 percent. In Japan, the Nikkei 225 has risen about 0.6 percent at the open. The Kospi in South Korea up half a percent.、Uh, looks like the Hang Seng is going to rally about a third of a percent at the open. In the commodities markets,、uh, Brent crude oil pretty well unchanged on the New York close, $82.23 a barrel.、Uh, gold at $1,865 an ounce. Thank you for listening. Please tune in again tomorrow morning at eight o'clock. I'll be here with more money talk for you. Stay tuned for back chat.、Uh, Jim Gordon, Paul Zimmerman, with you very shortly. The weather forecast for today: sunny periods, dry during the day. Maximum temperature of about 25 degrees. Sunny periods in the next couple of days, rather warm during the day, and it's 21 degrees right now. 67% relative humidity. It's 8:32. Here's Todd Harding with the news. Seven people have been arrested over the kidnapping of a cryptocurrency investor who was beaten with hammers and metal chairs and held for ransom. The victim is in hospital with multiple leg and hand fractures. Andy Shirovsky has the details. Police officers have said the 39-year-old victim showed up in Kowloon Bay on November the 6th to meet a buyer he met online to sell the digital currency Tether. The male buyer later lured the victim into a unit in an industrial building in the area to complete the transaction. There, the victim was severely beaten and attacked with hammers and metal chairs. The kidnappers also forced the victim to surrender his mobile phone and passwords for his online banking and trading platform accounts. They forced him to call his family and friends to ask them to pay a ransom. Officers said. The victim was blindfolded and taken to a container terminal by car in the early hours of November the seventh. He was brought to a remote squatter hut in Hamhangchun in Taipo at night on the same day. And Austria has introduced a lockdown for an estimated two million unvaccinated people aged twelve and over as it seeks to contain its worst wave of coronavirus infections to date. They'll only be able to leave home to work, visit a doctor, exercise, or buy essential supplies. The Austrian Chancellor Alexander Schallenberg announced the new measures. I must very openly say, we are not taking this step lightly. I must say very openly that we are not taking this step lightly, but unfortunately, it is necessary. We have flagged it up for the past few days, and today it will be implemented. 
We're also clear that this is the lower end of measures. This is a country-wide measure, a lockdown for unvaccinated people from the west to the east. But of course regions are free to take further selective steps. Critics have questioned the constitutionality of the move. And wildlife officials in Bangladesh say at least four elephants have been killed in the past week, putting more pressure on the dwindling population of the endangered animals. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Jim Gould and your co-host today is Paul Zimmerman. Good morning, morning, Paul. Morning, Jim. So, tomorrow morning, our time President Xi Jinping will hold a virtual meeting with his US counterpart, Joe Biden, which it's hoped will lead to more stability amid increased uh, tensions between the world's two largest economies. It comes after the Chinese Communist Party's Central Committee passed an historic resolution last Thursday which places President Xi Jinping on a level with the former leaders Mao Zedong and Deng Xiaoping. The resolution outlined the challenges and successes of the party over the past 100 years in taking forward the development of the nation. It also endorsed the president's policies on Hong Kong and Taiwan as part of his major political achievements. What does this uh, mean for the future direction of the nation? We'll be talking to some uh, experts and after 9.15 we're discussing the management of Hong Kong's wild boar population after increasing encounters with the animals uh, straying into built-up areas. Let us know your thoughts. Uh, you can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. Email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call on two double three double eight two double six. Joining us for our main discussion this morning, we have uh, on the line uh, Andrew Leung, international and independent uh, China strategist, uh, uh, Mark O'Neill, author and China analyst, and Jean-Pierre Cabistan, a research professor of political science at the Department of Government and International Studies at Hong Kong Baptist University. Um, uh, Jean-Pierre Cabestan first. So th- the rev- resolution uh, looks forward uh, to a new era. Um, what do you think uh, is meant exactly by uh, the new era? Hello. Hello. Get yes, good, good morning. morning good morning, Jean-Pierre. Yes, yes. Can you hear us? Uh, yes, the new era, the, the era of Xi Jinping. Uh, Xi Jinping uh, has been mentioned 17 times in the document, which is not yet the resolution, by the way, it's just a communique of the sixth plenum of the uh, current uh, Central Committee of the Communist Party. So Xi Jinping has been mentioned 17 times, Mao seven times, Tong five times, Tong Zemin and Hu Jintao just one time. So it's, uh, I think it's just one indicator of the fact that we are in the era of Xi Jinping, a new form of socialism, a new form of Marxism of the uh, 21st century. So, um, which is very much under sitting thing, but also under the leadership of the one party, which is the Communist Party. And the whole, the whole uh, gist of the, uh, this communique, because we don't know yet the full text of the resolution, is that the party is uh, on a uh, endeavor for another hundred years after having um, achieved a, a number of successes in the last hundred years. What is striking in this uh, um, document, what we know of it, is that the past seems to have been a, a very seamless um, story of, uh, and, and 
uh, an, an, an accumulation of achievements of the party. So the, uh, um, contrary to the uh, two former historical documents which the Communist Party issued in 45, 1945, 1981, there is no mention of the uh, weaknesses, of the uh, shortcomings, uh, of the of the tragedies uh, which uh, the Communist Party has went through and this Chinese society has went through because of the Communist Party, and particularly during the Mao era. So it's a very seamless narrative which we we've, we have in this document. It's also inclusive in a way that it doesn't criticize Chiang Zemin or Hu Jintao, but he wants to correct. I mean, that's the uh, major, I think, uh, 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 dimension of this uh, document is to correct some of the, some of the uh, uh, issues or, and, and, or fix some of the issues which haven't been fixed so far. So there is an indirect um, criticism, in a way, of, uh, of the problem we haven't been solved yet, uh, like um, the issue of good governance. Um, the issue of um, uh, having and keeping a strong ideology, and of course the uh, battle against uh, corruption. So uh, now it's um, a document which uh, has been um, approved by the Communist Party Central Committee a year before the next party congress, which is going to be held uh, in the autumn of um, maybe October 2022, and uh, to prepare, of course, a perpetuation of uh, the leadership of Xi Jinping. So Xi Jinping thought. Uh, is uh, now at the pinnacle of the party ideology, and it's here to stay. So, so it's very much uh, a preparation of uh, uh, sort of com convincing the party to approve City uh, Jinping's uh, re-election uh, as a party chief uh, a year from now. And, and it celebrates the ability of the party to reinvent itself uh, over the, uh, throughout all those tragedies, isn't it? Yes, I mean, there is one thing which is quite interesting is the, uh, the concept of self-reforming. So the party has kept self-reforming uh, in order to uh, adjust to the time and to uh, remain ahead of the, of the curve and, and to, be, um, the, uh, uh, to be the party of, of the people. So uh, that's the, if you want, the, the, the foundation of the democratic legitimacy of the party is to say we, we, we hear the people, we represent the people. Of course, there is no, and, and well, there, there is some, uh, 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 I would say, uh, superficial consultation of the people, but they, uh, they, they, it's the party which knows better what the people need and, uh, and, uh, and, and leads the people and, and, and rule for the people. So, again, it's a, a rule for the people in the name of the party, uh, but not by the people. And that's the major difference with the uh, with democratic systems, of course. Mm. Mm. Andrew Lowe? Yep, good morning. Morning, yeah. Yeah. morning Andrew. Yeah. Morning. So, yeah, so uh, what's your reading of the, uh, of the communique and, and its uh, emphasis on the, yeah. the leadership of uh, President Xi? Right. Well, as I've been reading a lot of international uh, commentary on, on, on this, um, it seems that a lot of the West um, think tanks and academics and commentators are concentrating on Xi's uh, apparent uh, wish to seize more power uh, as, he, as if he's not already the, uh, China's most powerful leader. Uh, in fact, um, uh, the most supported by his people, according to the latest Harvard Kennedy School report. Um, and also, um, um, there was a rhetoric that he wants to consolidate his position uh, in advance uh, of the decision to um, uh, 
uh, formally endorse his third term, as if his third term is not already assured. Otherwise, why should he not? Why should he should change the constitution under his watch to enable this to happen? Now, uh, I think that this um, um, pen, uh, uh, plenary uh, is really um, a reconfirmation uh, of the CCP's legitimacy, because uh, under its tutelage. Uh, China has uh, undergone a miraculous change uh, to emerge from backwardness and isolation to become the world's second largest economy. Uh, and well, and out of 128 countries, uh, out of 190 countries, 128 has China as the largest trading partner. So it's really a remarkous, cha uh, miraculous change. But I think most of all uh, is that uh, uh, President Xi. Uh, wants to um, 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 himself to be seen uh, as the architect uh, of the PRC 3.0. Uh, what does PRC 3.0 mean? That means Mao uh, make China stand up um, against foreign aggression and backwardness, and Deng, uh, Deng Xiaoping make China richer, and under sea, uh, China is going to become stronger. Uh, so I think this is, is, a, is, a, is a completely new era, um, according to this rhetoric. Um, but of course, that the party recognizes that, that there was Herculean hurdles to overcome for China to realize the second centenary goal of become a strong, democratic, civilized, harmonious, and modern socialist country by the year 2049. There are tremendous challenges, both internal and external. Um, we can talk about that in greater length later on, uh, including uh, democratic, a, a demographic cliff China is likely to become uh, older, you know, to, uh, to get old be before becoming rich. Yeah. Uh, the so-called uh, middle income trap, uh, the kind of pushback against China worldwide, um, and so on and so forth. So I think that this is, uh, sets the scene uh, for China to embark uh, on this uh, next uh, perhaps uh, the final splint uh, towards the realization of the China dream by the year 2049. Final sprint. I mean, that's a, yes. an interesting one. Uh, life will go on for many centuries, so this cannot be the final sprint, can it? Well, I think that the idea is by the year 2049, uh, China is going to become um, um, at least um, uh, amongst the, the world's superpower, if not the uh, superpower. Um, and the idea is that um, by that year, um, China would be fully unified, including Taiwan. Um, and, and I think that, that you can see that all the policies are in train to achieve that. But as I said, there are tremendous uh, hurdles uh, along the way. And we can talk about that, uh, how China is addressing some of these hurdles. Uh, demographics, for example, um, now you will look at China's economy, um, a lot of the um, uh, production processes and even um, supermarkets uh, are, are almost peopleless. Uh, there's a use of robotics, uh, there's a kind of peopleless stores, um, and then uh, China is now focusing on the uh, digital economy. Um, and of course, uh, because of the uh, West pushback, um, China is focusing on self-reliance in technology, um, and above all, um, in terms of enhancing productivity, China is rely, relying on 
the huge um, urbanization connected by high-speed rail. Now, uh, China's high-speed rail is already voted to be the world's largest, um, I think 38,000 kilometers. The idea is that China would double that uh, to 70,000 kilometers by the year 2035, and linking all the cities together throughout China, however remote, um, and even uh, some of the small towns be linked by, by, by rail. But together with uh, the digital economy, um, the digitization, and also um, uh, technology, um, uh, to push China towards an innovative um, uh, nation. But of course, this is the idea. And as I said, there are still tremendous challenges on the way. Mm-hmm. And hence, uh, this kind of uh, setting the scene uh, for this trajectory and rallying uh, the Chinese people towards that goal. Well, maybe you should ask uh, Marco O'Neill then to give us the other side of the coin. Mark? You know, one of the principles of Deng Xiaoping was not to allow uh, a leader to remain in power indefinitely because Deng and all his generation had seen the grave mistakes which Chairman Mao made. So Deng said that a leader can only serve two five-year terms and uh, Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao both uh, announced their successes five years in advance. So everybody knew that the new leader would have a second five-year term and he would be succeeded by someone else. Now, as we know, President Xi has changed that and uh, he's going to have a third term uh, next uh, next autumn and uh, maybe he will be president for life. Um, we also have now a cult of uh, the president. Uh, we have his thoughts. Uh, students in schools have to study it. And this never happened under Deng. Deng pressed his reform and open-door policies. I mean, he made great, enormous changes in the economic sphere. But he was very careful not to have photographs of him all over the place. And he didn't allow any kind of cult of personality about himself because he wanted to avoid the mistakes of uh, Mao. So we're now in an era which is more similar to that of the Mao era uh, than the Deng, uh, Jiang Zemin, or Hu Jintao era. Um, and uh, th- this, this, I think, is, is very, um, how do we say, it's something we, we should pay great attention to, because why did Deng, why was he so certain about not allowing this uh, unchecked power and that is what we now have, and that's what we're now going to have in the future. Um, and then why did Xi Jinping think that we need it at this moment to change that? Well, um, I, I don't understand him personally. I mean, I, I, I don't know, but I assume that like leaders all over the world, he, he enjoys power and he wants to hold on to it as long as possible. And if if he's able to have power indefinitely, he will, he will do it. And he has been very successful in organizing uh, the party, the meetings, to enable himself to obtain this power. So it's a great personal success for him. It's just the question I'm asking, is, is this going to be good for China in the long term, to have one person 
with so much power for an indefinite period. So sure, sure, but I mean, other leaders around the world, Mayor Bloomberg did it in New York City, uh, uh, Angela Merkel has been in power in, in Germany for a very long time. I mean, we, we, it's, it's not uncommon for, uh, for leadership to, uh, to go on for a, a longer period of time, and, and certainly when they find themselves in a period of success. Yeah, but, but I mean, Merkel had to go through elections, popular elections. She had to be approved by um, her Christian Democrat Party. Bloomberg had to go through elections. So, yes, they can remain in power, but there is a, a check uh, on their power. But from what we can see at the moment, um, there doesn't appear to be any check on presidency in the near future. I mean, of course, Chinese politics is completely opaque. It's, it's impossible for us to know how much opposition there is within the party and on what issues and what form it takes. It's very, it's very hard to know. But from the outside, all we can say is uh, the, there are no checks and balances now on him in terms of pol political or judicial. And... Uh, uh, I, I'm, I'm just reflecting the opinion of Deng Xiaoping. I'm not re reflecting my opinion. This was Deng's judgment that uh, this should not be allowed to happen. I think there's a, a great deal of interest, too, in the way things may change and develop in the future. I mean, the party has uh, declared uh, victory in the battle against poverty, and now there's uh, great attention on uh, President Xi's uh, notion of common prosperity. Um, uh, Jean-Pierre Cabestan, um, yeah. how do you think that may be achieved uh, in the future, common prosperity and, uh, and uh, raising living standards all, all round? Um, no, that, I think it's a very important objective for the party. Uh, may I just come back a minute on the language used by the document we've, uh, which has been published? It's a very hyperbolic language, uh, which is not very comprehensible for people who are not Chinese and Chinese communists. Uh, so, um, but it hides maybe a lack of unanimity in the party. And uh, I think the reason Xi Jinping needs so much power is because the party and himself, maybe they feel today more in danger than before. Um, domestic danger to some degree, because I think they, the accumulation of power by Xi Jinping has been questioned uh, within the party when he revised the constitution and outside of the party among the elites. Um, two million po posts have been taken down from the internet just this year because they, haven't, they were not uh, compatible with the narrative of the Communist Party about Chinese history. Um, and to come, and, and I think the party is also in danger because there are more tensions with the, the, on the international stage with the United States, but also with, with Japan, with Australia, with the European Union. So there's a need for more power accumulated in the hands of, them, uh, of the number one of the party. That's a thing which is very important. Now, come back to your question about common prosperity, I think it's a very important objective. But I feel, I see here a very obvious tension between this objective of common prosperity and the other, which is to uh, turn China to a great power on par with the States, which is able to unify with Taiwan. Uh, I think the party will have to make a choice between guaranteeing common prosperity for its people and unifying with Taiwan, uh, whatever, whatever the means to unify with Taiwan are used. And, and here, um, that's, uh, I think, also 
probably a divisive issue within the party because it, it, it's, it's a really a dilemma which cannot be easily overcome. And, and free enterprise has um, driven a lot of the economic uh, progress in China. Yeah, but, yeah. Yes, right. And, and that's, well, that's something I wanted to... That's another t tension which is more domestic, in a way, um, is how, yes, how you achieve common prosperity on um, putting more and more control on the private businesses. What I can see is that at the local level, uh, there is not much... Uh, there is some supervision of the private sector, but uh, uh, and particularly the big companies, uh, you know, Alibaba, of course, uh, Tencent, and so on. Uh, but small companies uh, have carried on their activities. Uh, so small private companies have carried on their activities as before. So because uh, those are there's the major uh, job providers, they are the major growth providers, and uh, I think it would be very, very um, insensible of the party to 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 uh, to you know, um, uh, sideline all the private uh, sectors of the economy. I think it will be very dangerous. And that's, uh, uh, the, you know, the best way for China to remain stuck in the mid, mid, middle-income uh, trap. Uh, if uh, if they, they really uh, put too much pressure and too much uh, um, the, the, uh, hurdles, they give, put too, much, too many hurdles on, on the private sector. Andrew Leung, how do you think uh, it's going to be achieved? Uh, changes to the tax system? Yeah, um, I think first of all, I think the um, uh, China uh, and of course the Communist Party doesn't believe that elections is the only form of government in the whole world. There are elections all over the world, including Iraq and, and, and so on and so forth. Um, but it's not, it's not proven to be the panacea that, that applies to all countries. Um, of course, the uh, presidency is not saying that the only form of government is the communism, by, by no means. But at least um, under the CDC's tutelage, it at least as, as legitimate as any other form of government in the light of its track record, record, record. Now, secondly, why more power now? You know, why, uh, how, why is it different from, uh, from Deng's era? Um, the, I think the fact remains that... Um, under the CCP's, uh, with the CCP's assessment, there are, as I said, tremendous hurdles, both internal and external, for China to realize its um, China dream. Um, and President Xi sees himself in the light of his successful trade record. There is no other suitable candidate in sight, at least for the next term or the, or the, 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 the term after next. But that's dangerous, um, isn't it, Andrew? If, I mean, if you don't, as a, as, a, as a society, don't see a lineup of leadership, is that not a weakness and a danger to the ongoing success of, uh, of, of, the, of the party and of the country? Sure. Yeah, well, I mean, at least for now, uh, there, there, there is in fact no credible uh, success in sight. Well, let's, let's not forget that it's not just see himself. If there are indeed credible successes, and there are um, sufficient uh, support within the party, I think we're going to see a, a tremendous um, pushback uh, against President Xi. We're not seeing that by any means. So, uh, thirdly, um, you mentioned common prosperity, uh, rightly so. Uh, and also you, you, you mentioned the success of a free enterprise, but unfortunately unbridled free enterprise, including monopolistic behavior of the so-called big tech, uh, is also making worse. China's already uh, worsening um, uh, uh, inequality. Uh, China is among the most unequal countries uh, in the world in terms of the economy, and that's not very sustainable. Um, and hence, 
the need to um, uh, spread uh, the wealth a little bit, not by force, but also by enabling um, um, uh, the middle class. And China's, that, that's why the China's now, um, with the urbanization, with the increased uh, use of um, uh, the, the um, high-speed rail and so on and so forth, is to grow the current middle class, uh, perhaps double that, to 800 million um, uh, people in the middle class uh, by the turn of the century. Um, so I think that this is the, the, the part of the, the trajectory. Um, I think that the West tends to look at China from the Western perspective, whereas therefore each country, um, according to the, uh, the, the theory and also practice of the CCP, each country is different. You've got to look at each country's history, its um, dynamics, uh, its uh, made up, its geography, um, because each country has got a different development path. And according to um, uh, the record, at least for the past uh, so many years, uh, the current uh, uh, model seems to be relatively successful under the CCP's tutelage, uh, in spite of all the setbacks. Yeah, um, Mark O'Neill, the, the, the development and progress of the country has really been uh, remarkable. Andrew Lung described it as uh, miraculous. I mean, it is, uh, it's, it's quite a story in terms of uh, world development, isn't it? Oh, indeed. Um, but can I speak a little about common prosperity? You, sure. you, cer you certainly can, Mark. The thing is, we're probably going to have to hold on to it for a little while because we've got a break for the news summary at uh, 9 o'clock. That's just in one minute's time. Um, but uh, we'll be back at three minutes past. So, okay, so, so I will hang so, on then. So, so, so <laughs> please hold on. I think we have to say uh, goodbye and thank you now to Jean-Pierre Cabestan, who is leaving us at 9 o'clock. Uh, Jean-Pierre Cabestan, Research Professor of Political Science at the Department of Government and International Studies at Hong Kong Baptist U. Thank you very much. Uh, we'll talk to Andrew Leung and Mark O'Neill uh, a little more um, after the news summary. Um, leave a message for us, if you like, on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. Email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call on 233 Quick look uh, at the weather. Sunny periods. Uh, top temperature today around 25 degrees. Uh, the outlook? Sunny periods in the next couple of days and rather warm during the daytime and cooler in the latter part of this week. Currently 22 degrees, humidity 65%. And this morning we're talking about the uh, the Chinese Communist Party's uh, Central Committee passing that uh, historic resolution <laughs> last Thursday raising the status of uh, President Xi Jinping to that of Mao Zedong and Deng Xiaoping. Um, also, a little bit later, we'll be uh, looking ahead uh, to um, the virtual meeting between President Xi and uh, the US President Joe Biden, which will be taking place uh, tomorrow morning, our time. Um, but uh, before we do that, uh, just before the break, um, Mark O'Neill was uh, about to give us his thoughts on the notion of uh, common prosperity and what that might mean uh, for the nation uh, in the years ahead. So, uh, so uh, Mark, uh, yeah, please go on. Yeah, well, Prime Minister Li Keqiang said that 600 million Chinese live on less than 1,000 renminbi a month. Now, this issue of common prosperity is a headache for governments all around the world, you know, uh, in Europe, in, in North America. I mean, everywhere. It's, it's not unique to China. And what Deng Xiaoping said is that we should allow a certain number of people to become rich first. And that's exactly what's happened. So, um, as Andrew mentioned, we have the enormous wealth gap at the moment. So I think it's a very laudable objective to try to redistribute the wealth, the enormous wealth that China has now. 
But it, this is going to be an extremely difficult process. And let's just start with property taxes. Now, property taxes is a very sensible way to try to redistribute wealth because people who are wealthy have properties. And many of them have dozens of properties. So if we can tax those people for a portion of their wealth, that would produce money which we can redistribute to the less fortunate and the poor people. But this tax has been discussed for several years, and there is enormous opposition to it because um, the, the people who own the properties, of course, are very much against it. And many properties, thousands of properties, are owned by officials. So, of course, they're against the tax. So what's going on now is there is a, a fierce debate between Beijing that wants to implement this property tax and the cities where it's going to be implemented. So I think we were going to have 30 experimental cities. The, the last I heard is now down to four experimental cities. And the modalities of how it's going to be implemented has not been fixed yet. Should there be some exemptions for certain kinds of people? So this is just an example of the difficulties of implementing what would be a very sensible measure to try and raise revenue. Mm. So what I'm saying is uh, this redistribution is going to be very difficult and time-consuming. So, so democracy the, is working. The party in. insists it will not be done mm -hmm. as it was done in the 50s, where the party simply confiscated assets of wealthy people. They're saying it won't be done in this way. So it's going to be done through negotiations, legislation, uh, implementations of legislation. So, uh, yeah, it's going to be difficult and uh, laborious to do this. Are they considering other uh, forms of uh, taxation, progressive income tax? Uh, yes, I mean, I think everything is on the table. Um, and, uh, you know, Chinese are very low, pay very low tax by comparison with those in developed countries. So there's a lot of potential raising tax from income or from other products. But uh, as I say, this will take a lot of negotiations and uh, it's not going to be easy to, to do. So, so democracy is working in China? Well, I mean, I think <laughs> on the property issue, I think the... Or income tax. I mean, it seems that, that if the party is quite sensitive to how the community and the, the public responds to, uh, to an increase in taxation, then... Uh, yeah, but it's... Which public, you see? Of course, the poor... Of course, welcome taxes, the higher the better, because they stand to benefit from them. But the people who own the assets, of course, they are against such taxes. And it's the people with assets who are more influential and, um, uh, you know, occupy high places in the party and high places in companies. And I mean, they're much more influential in, 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 in the government and in the, in the country. So, well, it's, it, I mean, it's just like it is in Europe or United States. I mean, the, the rich are always trying to uh, oppose any taxes on them. So, Andrew, is the party speaking for the rich or is the party speaking for the people? Hello. Uh, are you talking to me? I'm asking, yeah, I'm, I, I, that's my question to you, based on right, what we okay, just have you. learned. Is the party uh, speaking well, for the people or the, for the rich? It's an Herculean task, uh, as mm -hmm. I mentioned before. But as far as poverty reduction is concerned, um, and uh, uh, China has achieved something unprecedented, uh, even in human history, lifting over one, 800 million people out of poverty, um, as defined by, um, uh, I think, $1.25 a day, um, in, 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 in less than a couple of decades. 
And after that, um, and, and President Xi doubled down uh, to lift the, the threshold a little bit even higher uh, than the world definition of, of, of abject poverty, and has now claimed successfully to, to have lifted almost all people out of poverty. Um, because of the last couple of years um, in uh, kind of imposition on all the party secretaries to, to, deliver, to deliver the results. Now, secondly, as I mentioned before, um, another strand of the poverty reduction or, or to achieve common prosperity is to grow to China's middle class. And the idea is to double that um, before, definitely before 2049 uh, to 800 million people. And then would grow the China's internal economy, consumption, services, uh, which under, under, uh, underline um, the, uh, the current objective of a dual circulation economy. Mm -hmm. In other words, rather we're relying on exports, which is energy intensive, um, and, 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 and growing the internal economy so as to balance uh, the kind of uh, exports and, and so on, dominated by big enterprises. Yeah, sure, Andrew, but then the question is, is, is there going to be wealth distribution? I mean, if you're going to redistribute wealth, does the party have the power to do that? Can they, do they feel that they can accomplish that? Is, that? is that common prosperity? And is that the better that, that is going on? Is that the reason why Xi Jinping needs his third term uh, and needs uh, such a build up such a strong position well, to I be able to enforce and, and put in place this common prosperity and redistribute wealth? Yeah, well, that, that, that's, as I said at the beginning, of, uh, first of all, it's a Herculean task. There are various vested interests. Um, and that's why you need a very, very strong party under a very, very strong leader. Uh, and I think that for the past couple of decades, the, C, uh, the, the CCP has demonstrated its ability to tide over various stages of very different challenges. As I said, uh, the challenges under Mao is different from the challenges under Deng, and the challenges under C. PRC 3.0 is entirely different. Now, this coming prosperity, as you rightly highlighted, is a worldwide phenomenon. Um, less than um, something like 2,000 uh, billionaires in the world control wealth, um, uh, more than 60% of mankind. So this is really unsustainable, um, not only in China, but the, for the rest of the world. And China is now playing its part. Uh, but for that, you need a very, very strong party. Uh, you lead a very, very strong leadership with a kind of track record. Um, and as I said, according to the Harvard Kennedy School re recent report, the CPC's uh, government is the most supported by its people compared to other democracies, including the United States. So I think that this um, China just uh, C is trying to show that, of course, this cannot be applied to all other countries, but at least uh, people should not look down and criticize the CPC as if it's a, a, a demon, some kind of a threat. Um, I think that um, uh, uh, the trajectory would not be easy, but you need um, uh, the consolidation of state power and uh, the rallying of the support of the Chinese people uh, and, and, to, and to keep their heads down to achieve the China, China dream by the year 2049. OK, well, we mentioned uh, earlier that uh, President Xi will be holding a, a virtual meeting uh, with his uh, US counterpart, uh, Joe Biden. Um, that will be taking place, I think, uh, tomorrow morning, our time. Um, Mark O'Neill, what do you think we can expect from that? Well, I think your correspondent, Barry Wood, put it very well. I mean, the, the main news is that it's happening at all. Mm. And after all that's happened in the last year and the, the <laughs> intensifying Cold War between the two countries, on, in so many sectors, it's, it's a very good news that the two 
leaders are having a face-to-face meeting uh, today. But I, I, I don't expect that we'll have any uh, breakthrough. I don't see either side making any concessions on these very tricky issues that, uh, that face them. For instance, on the question of Taiwan, I don't think Mr. Xi is going to change his opinion, nor is Mr. Biden going to change his opinion. But at least, you know, we, we saw the two sides have this joint press conference in Glasgow on, on the climate issue. That was very positive. So maybe the best outcome of this meeting will be agreements to have meetings so that on trade or military or diplomatic issues, you know, in the different sectors, the two sides could have regular dialogue. And I think this is especially the case in the military area because, you know, um, I'm reading a book by a Taiwan scholar which says, is Taiwan prepared for war? I mean, there are articles everywhere now saying, is there going to be a war between the U.S. and China over Taiwan or in the South China Sea? Uh, and, you know, this is, I mean, this could be World War Three. This could be the end of all of us. So this is a very uh, unsettling, uh, dangerous thing. So I think it's very important if the two leaders can establish some kind of mechanism, the Chinese military and the U.S. military can speak to each other, that they can have regular meetings, they can inform the other what they're doing, uh, they can explain what they're doing, and we can minimize or preferably end any possibility of an accidental conflict which might spiral into into a war. Um, So if, if today's summit can produce some sort of mechanism uh, regular talks, regular dialogue, that would really be a, gr- a breakthrough. But, but I, I'm not so optimistic because of you know, all the things that have been said and done in the last 12 months. Um, but what is, it, what is a possible path um, away from the re- rhetoric regarding reunification with Taiwan? Well, as I said, Mr. C is not going to change his position. Mr. Biden isn't going to change his position. So... The best we can hope for is that the, the, the PLA and the U.S. Army can have uh, communication, they can have regular meetings, they can explain what they're doing, the PLA can explain why we're sending uh, air jets around Taiwan, the U.S. can explain we're sending ships to South China Sea or in the Taiwan Strait what we're doing. So each side knows exactly what the other is doing. and it, 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 you know. There won't be a um, accidental um, uh, provocation mm-hmm. which could lead to to, to a war. I think that that's that would be my number one hope for this meeting today. Okay. Well, it will be for all of us in Hong Kong because whatever if that happens, then Hong Kong is the first one to suffer badly. Indeed, I mean, uh, if there's a war, uh, Hong Kong could be targeted. You know, it's quite possible. So, mm. yeah. no, this is an absolute nightmare. So. If the two leaders can, <laughs> you know, uh, guide us away from this, and of course it's not in the interest of either country or either leader for this to happen. So uh, let's hope there'll be some common ground on that question. Okay, Andrew, and Andrew Lang, what are, you, what are your hopes for the meeting? Well, I agree that it's not going to be, uh, to, to, uh, to, to be a breakthrough because we're seeing a crash of great powers. 
um, is likely to continue uh, until at least uh, China achieves the position of being the largest economy in the world. Uh, but that even then, uh, the, cra- uh, the, the kind of conflict is likely to continue, um, if not a clash of civilizations and ideology. Um, and the, um, the United States sees that this um, emerging China uh, as kind of eroding um, its uh, kind of predominance uh, in terms of uh, the rhetoric that the uh, Western model is the only model um, uh, that ends history. Um, so I think that we're likely to see this crash continuing. As for Taiwan, I think that this is a re- real danger, as pointed out by your other uh, interlocutor, um, um, because um, the United States is trying to push the envelope, uh, trying to blow up provoke China without uh, giving up the so-called uh, one-China policy, but still keep keeping on um, and pushing the envelope. So um, what President Xi, uh, what China is saying, well, you can't continue to do this, uh, because um, once uh, Taiwan is now declaring kind of uh, de facto independence, uh, there's no other way out for, 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 for China, because the whole of China's people are in support uh, of the eventual unification. And the CPC has already said many times that the, um, the, 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 the objective is to reunify Taiwan by peaceful means. But that's only be possible if it's not being provoked into a war. And that's what seems the Americans trying to do. So the hands lies the danger. Uh, and I think, meanwhile, both sides, as pointed out, uh, need to manage uh, this kind of ret- uh, rhetoric and also dynamics. Uh, otherwise, it's not just a limited war, as some would say, uh, but it's likely to escalate because both are uh, nuclear p- uh, powers with hypersonic weapons. Um, and then could easily uh, war into uh, uh, not only a regional war targeting Hong Kong, but also worldwide. So I think it's very dangerous. But there is no let up uh, for China, for, for the CBC, uh, to include uh, Taiwan, the unification, as one of its aims uh, for the realization of the China dream by the year 2049. Just one, just one question on the, I know we want to wrap up, but the uh, one question on what you just said. So you, your opinion is that uh, the U.S. is aiming for war over Taiwan? Not really. Uh, oh, okay, that's, I, I thought US, that's you, that, what you just said. Well, okay. the U.S. wants to push the envelope, uh, try to, 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 to uh, achieve a situation uh, where China can be coerced and also um, uh, push back so that this con- uh, the Taiwan's uh, current status could carry on forever. Uh, that's the ideal situation for, 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 for the United States. But on the other hand, uh, if we push the envelope uh, too far, the envelope is going to, to, to break. Um, and then that hence lies the, the, the danger. All right, then discussion for next time. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you very much for joining us uh, on the program, uh, Andrew Lung, there, international and independent uh, China strategist, and thanks also very much to Mark O'Neill, author and uh, China analyst. And uh, before nine o'clock, uh, we heard from Jean-Pierre Cabestan, a research professor of political science at the Department of Government and International Studies at Hong Kong Baptist University. And um, for the last uh, segment uh, of the program this morning, we're going to be Uh, turning to our second topic and that is the management of the wild boar population uh, here in Hong Kong Um, follows uh, a number of uh, incidents including uh, one last week where uh, a policeman was uh, was knocked over and 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 bitten on the leg by a wild boar while the um, officers were trying to round it up in um, 
in Tin Hao. Um, and now the, uh, the AFCD um, says it intends to capture and put down wild boars that stray into urban areas, uh, which has caused uh, something of a reaction. Uh, we're joined uh, in our Admiralty studio by Fiona Woodhouse, uh, Deputy Director of Welfare for the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. Uh, good morning to you. Morning. So what do you think about this, uh, this idea of uh, capturing the animals and um, putting them down? Um, well, I think that uh, obviously we have to understand the risks associated with the wild boars and when they come into urban territories. But there have been studies that show that this type of lethal control um, or lethal removal, as it may be sort of called, um, isn't really effective in the long term and sustainable. Um, because what often happens is, number one, are you taking out the, the boar that is actually causing the problem or just some uh, boar that happens to be there on the occasion when you do the operation? Or um, once you take out one boar, they're quite often repeat, replaced quite rapidly by another because the key driver for this behaviour in the boars is actually human behaviour. So in reality, if we want a sustainable approach to this issue, we have to focus on human behaviour change. Um, so we have to stop people feeding the wild boar deliberately. Um, we have to look at um, expanding the ban on feeding wild animals, which we've been advocating for a long time from the SPCA, but also looking at other sources of food for these animals in the urban environment. Um, they will scavenge on waste. So we need to work with FEHD on waste management. Mm -hmm. but also the building management as well, because quite often you will find that actually building waste management is also contributing to this issue where buildings may be storing their waste inadequately or placing it outside. Um, and also we need to work with the public, um, sort of when they're using areas to be uh, sort of conscious about how they handle their food and removing the waste with them as well. So barbecue sites, campsites, parks, etc. There can be inadvertent feeding that happens. So we need to tackle those issues on all fronts. And really the aim would be to inter intervene at the pig level at a last, as a last resort, ideally. So, but this has been talked about for a long time uh, and uh, everybody sees these notices, don't feed the animals under as a penalty. Uh, what, what, what do we need to change in the, in the law? As a district councillor, I'm fully aware that there are these uh, complications because every time we find somebody feeding, then there are, and we call the government in to do something about it, um, we find that they have a lot of problems actually taking action under the current legislation. Yeah, well, current legislation, the only area, to my knowledge, that has a ban is the Kamshan country parks in relation to feeding macaques and actually there's very low level enforcement even in that area so we need to expand the band territory wide and cross multiple species and also to um, sort of highlight enforcement on black spot areas so really sending out uh, teams to areas where there is a big issue where there's repeated fe feeding and also our penalties are pretty low so in Hong Kong the maximum penalty is $10,000 whereas in Singapore the equivalent penalty is 55000 Hong Kong dollars as well so this type of issue is not specific to Hong Kong. There are issues in Singapore, other countries, even in the UK with wild boar management. So we really need to be more effective in our enforcement and um, also get different departments engaged. So sometimes there's issues where is it deliberate feeding or is it littering? Um, so again, we need to work with different ordinances to make sure that we, we follow up. Um, and really some of the penalties for feeding have been very low, a couple of hundred dollars to maybe a couple of thousand maximum. And there are people who are repeat offenders so we need to 
work with enforcement but also the magistrates to understand the serious consequences when we don't have penalties that affect, act as effective deterrence, especially for repeat offenders. Uh, and what about the numbers? I mean, they, they do seem to be uh, proliferating. I, I mean, if there, if there are too many bores for, for their area of the country park or whatever, does that mean it's likely that they're going to wander into the urban areas and, and you know, create a, uh, you know, possible trouble in um, you know, encounters with people? Um, I think there are two factors. Yes, you know, there is an issue with population growth, um, but we need to do more studies to understand what the population is and what the carrying capacity is of our parks. And they are naturally inquisitive, though, so they will explore around their area. But quite often, if you get a sort of opportunistic opportunistic encroachment that is just a random event it's where you get habituation where they're going in repeatedly because they've got a resource that they value that it becomes a problem and sometimes urban design doesn't help because they may go into an area inadvertently but the way we design our urban environment quite often has a lot of barriers so sometimes they can get stuck and uh, can't find their way back to where they want to go and that's when they get dangerous uh yes that can be but I, I, the piglet that got on the mtr i'm sure it didn't want to get on the mtr hmm. and go across but you know that piglet wasn't really dangerous no. and i think the issue also is sort of giving people the advice to you know leave the pigs alone if they do see a pig and also to make sure that the government departments that may be asked to come and intervene and help are properly trained and equipped to avoid accidents like happened the other night because obviously we don't want that situation to happen in any way. Sure, but if we learn from all the incidents that have taken place over the last 10 years and, and, and well, you know, as, as in Pockfulham we had a lot of p pigs there um, and, and we've had problems, uh, all the problems that I've seen, whether it was the, the incident at Hong Kong U, somebody got bitten or a kid got knocked over by a pig in the, in the park, it was always cornering. It was never anything else. It was only when the pig was cornered that there was a problem. And people, foolishness, uh, foolishly, uh, corner pigs. They, they stand in their way or they block their path or they actually go and have a look. Uh, it seems to be that, again, with the police officers as well, they're chasing the pig into a corner and the pig will want to escape. So, again, that's more human behaviour change than, than sort of expecting the pig to change its natural behaviour. But as you mentioned, they will normally only sort of interact um, if they're not habituated in any way and expecting to be fed when they feel threatened and they feel that they have to defend themselves. So, again, the, the advice would be, you know, don't approach the pig, cross the street. If you see a pig, uh, change your direction. If you're hiking, there's always alternate routes. Don't feel that you have to try to scare the pig off the path because that could end horribly wrong, uh, go horribly wrong, sorry. And um, obviously, again, if you're out with your dog, um, you may want to avoid areas where you think there may be wild boar present because, again, dogs may trigger incidents or you may want to have your dog on a leash. So um, we've got different things that we can do to try to... Uh, take action from the human perspective to avoid that human conflict. Um, but mm. the issue may be different when you've got a habituated pig that's used to being fed because they may actually approach people expecting to be fed and that may cause an issue. So again, you know, if you're going out hiking, you know, take a backpack, don't carry plastic bags in your hands, because uh, sometimes those are what people who are feeding, they'll take plastic bags, so pigs will see that. And if you're carrying a plastic bag and the pig is there, it may approach you to be fed. And if you're not expecting that, then you may sort of react in a way that then triggers a, a response from the pig. Okay, so this, the area where, where people are feeding, so like the lady on the on the, on the the peak with uh, with carrying feed, feeding for the cats that she was 
was uh, is looking after and then was attacked by a pig you know, that's three four weeks ago um, i mean this is this is what happens isn't it how do we stop people from from feeding they are the ones causing the trouble yeah i think there's there's the this is the whole thing is to actually target the people who are actually feeding the pigs to stop that habituation. Um, there are inadvertent things, so if you're walking on the street with a plastic bag for another purpose, then you're not obviously feeding the pig, but they've learnt to associate that sort of uh, article with being fed by other parties. So again, you can think about CCTV footage, black spot, targeted events, and really enforcement. So getting different government departments able to enforce related legislation. So FEHD, the police, AFCD, having more resources there to help prevent these these sort of habituation events because that is the key issue and then separately we can look at population control for the long term and assessing um, the behaviour of the pigs and how many pigs we, we can actually expect to live in our natural environment Because normally uh, in the wild uh, they would be afraid of people, right? They'd keep their distance from people but because of the feeding they've lost that fear Yes, um, normally they're pretty uh, secretive um, and a lot of pigs you don't you know, you see the habituated ones but there are many many more pigs that we don't see that are living in deep in the forest or the the yeah the trees in the country parks so yes it is important um and you know we have lost two out of three of the main predators for the wild boar so we do have to recognize that we do probably have to intervene in some way with things like the contraceptive programs etc to try and assist with population growth and management in that way just, just quick just quickly mm. you say we lost two out of the three main predators what, so, what, what uh, so with the tigers and the leopards that right. used to be here would, right. would predate on the wild boar and now we only have the burmese pythons yeah but also the wild dogs they used to go after the young but now the wild dogs have lost against the pigs so we don't see many wild dogs we see a lot of pigs now. yeah so some of the measures that we've imp implemented have actually been to try and control the feral dog population which then may have a as an intended consequence for their natural or their unnatural role in in the wild boar just a quick tradition. one in japan there is hunting uh, allowed hunting on the wild boars i mean that it is seen as as, ne as a necessity to control um, yeah, and in other countries, there's, there's hunting is also one of the control methods. But in Hong Kong, there were issues in terms of, you know, is it safe to, to have those sort of events? And also, there were some issues about, you know, the transparency and the triggering of the hunting and the historically and how that was carried out from an animal welfare perspective. So I think we really have to consider um, whether lethal control is, is something that we want to carry out in Hong Kong. And if that is going to go ahead, then it needs to be done properly with protocols, procedures, policies, very transparent, etc. Thank you. Okay, yeah, thank you very much for uh, joining us. Uh, Fiona Woodhouse there, Deputy Director of Welfare at the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. Uh, thank you. Um, well, uh, no emails this morning, which is uh, unusual. I'm not sure whether there's a problem with our server or, or what, but uh, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll look into it. Um, uh, we may have some emails that we can read uh, tomorrow. Um, I would just like to mention that um, some of our listeners have been asking about uh, Hugh Chiverton, our veteran programme host. He is still leading the team as head of English programme service. Uh, he's now focusing on some new projects and developments with the aim of bringing some new ideas to our radio programmes. Uh, 
And there is a reshuffle of our lineup uh, with me on Monday to Thursday and Janice Wong on Fridays on this programme, along with our regular and more irregular co-hosts. Uh, so stay tuned. Um, thank you to our listeners. Thank you to our guests. Um, thank you to you, Paul, and see you next time. All right, see you, Jim. And uh, a quick uh, look uh, at the weather before we go to the news summary and morning brew. Sunny periods, uh, dry during the day, top temperature around 25 degrees, moderate east to northeasterly winds, occasionally fresh offshore. The outlook, uh, sunny periods in the next couple of days, rather warm during the day, slightly cooler in the latter part of this week, currently 22 degrees, humidity 58%. Every vote carries a wish for our city and our vision for our life. Over the years, a clean election culture has been our common belief. Going forward together, we will continue in our faith to build a brighter future. Abide by the rules. Support clean elections. Report Corruption Hotline 25266366. Hong Kong. Our advantage is you and the ICAC. The News Summary with Todd Harding. Presidents Xi Jinping and Joe Biden will hold a highly anticipated virtual summit on Monday evening Washington time. The two have held two phone calls since Mr Biden took office in January, the most recent one in early September. But Monday's summit will be the first time in Biden's term they have communicated face-to-face in a summit format. The Beijing Stock Exchange opens today, just two months after President Xi Jinping announced plans for the new bourse. It will serve small and medium-sized enterprises. 81 companies will see their shares traded in the first batch of listings. And the government has awarded the gold medal for bravery to the late police chief inspector Lam Yun-Yi. It said in a statement that the CE awarded the medal posthumously to recognise the gallantry and selflessness shown by Chief Inspector Lam, who died at sea during an anti-smuggling operation in September. I'll have more news at 10 o'clock. Stand by for the brew. Uh, sociology prof from the University of Set and Costume Designer, Great interpreter of Beethoven, as well. Oh, so shy, quiet, and retiring doggy council co founder of Rockefeller Records. Hello. This is a really for adults, and not really for kids. Good morning. Yeah, well, it's fun, you know. Hello. The side of what's happening behind the myth. Good morning. In depth interviews and also observations. Absolutely no way. On your radio and live online, this is The Morning Brew. Good morning to you. Welcome to Monday and a new week here on The Morning Brew where we're going to start as always with Robbie McRobbie's local and international rugby report. So join Hong Kong Rugby CEO at 10.10. Lots of class, mostly third of course. 10.40 we're going to catch up with New York correspondent Tracy Kwan with her news and musings live of course from the Big Apple. Moving on, we often talk about recycling on Morning Brew, but it's usually to do with plastic bottles and general junk. Something that's huge in other countries.